I sometimes marvel at the success of social science. All these five-point surveys you get about how was your interaction or what's the product look like online or the data collection, it's all just a form of social science. And that's a kind of particular politics of reduction and taking out social context and making about consumers. So art is a, a way of reimagining a possibility of another discourse, uh, something outside. As long as I've taught, I'll start the term thinking, this may be it for capitalism. Caught in this loop of um, nothing square, nothing disrupts, nothing, there's no outside to it. Just struggling to keep forward, keep moving, keep moving. Like, we don't know, we don't know, we're just keeping moving forward. I like that kind of rebel nature. You're just not accepting, this is not acceptable. To only be preoccupied with your own consciousness is the most conservative practice. I'm Ken Moffat, and this is Downstream From What? So here we are, sat in my living room again. Okay. <laughs> um, today, we are going to interview to get a sense of why we spoke to the people we have in this podcast, Okay, how it connects to you and your work and what you saw for this podcast. Okay. So that's the setup. Do you want to say your name and a bit about you? I'm uh, Ken Moffat. Um, I'm a professor of social work um, at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm also the Jack Layton Chair, which is an appointment across the Faculty of Arts and Faculty of Community Services. So in this podcast, you interview activists who are closely linked to the arts community and artists who are closely linked to activism. That's yes. kind of the uniting theme. Can you talk about the connection between these two vocations? This comes up in your own written work as well. Let me talk about activism a little bit in the first place. I mean, I, I feel like I've spent a life close to activists, but I feel like there's been times my voice hasn't been quite as strong and strident, if I can put it that way. And um, and not strident in a bad way. I mean, strident in a good, bold way. Um, and I feel like um, activism itself... Uh, a certain form of activism needs a focus, a topic, a very particular way of talking to move things forward. Um, and yet I feel for myself personally, I'm some other form of activist. I've been there. I've been in it, but I've seldom, ironically, even though I'm the latent chair, seldom been the leader of it. Um, that's been a different type of role, a reimagining of things. Um, so I feel like arts and activism, in the simplest level, arts has always been an interest for me to reimagine my own self and my own location, um, particularly as someone who grew up as a queer kid in a working class, white, industrial city, Windsor, um, um, male dominated in a very particular way. Um, so art was, uh, is a, 
a way of reimagining a possibility of another discourse, uh, something outside. Um, and if I can be concrete about that, um, for me growing up, uh, a group such as the Beats, like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, were just something so far outside um, that and a kind of psychedelia that was coming out of Detroit at the time were so far outside the lived reality. Anyway, those spaces of art, in a way, are um, moments of activism, is what I would say, um, in that they help people who become constrained in social relations and are locally isolated start imagining new possibilities to move through. Um, but on top of that, I have, um, an incredible respect for people who can do a through line, who have an issue and they can, that's their narrative and they're going to work to that issue. So if I can speak, um, the, a classic example of someone I incredibly respect and have been able to work with is Kathy Crow, who's been able to focus on homelessness, and she's she's an expert in a good way. She knows it. She's on the front line, yet she can articulate it, and she's studied it, and she's writing about it, and so she's an activist. She's, in my mind, a model activist. Um, so when you talk about the two interviews that we've done um, so far, um, if I can talk about Alex first, I mean, I had an incredible respect for Alex technically as an artist before I knew him as an activist. Um, so he had the skill, he had the practicality of engaging in art. But then um, I became aware of his harm reduction work and then him using art as a way to keep focus, using this particular practice skill to keep a focus on this activism that he's doing. Um, and then what nailed it is when I heard he was running for politics. And this just made sense to me when I heard he was running uh, for council in Peterborough uh, because it was a kind of Again, there was a narrative, a, a through line, like he he was he is an artist and he's a skilled artist and he has much content, but he also has always had this particular focus on harm reduction. Uh, similar with Kike, that she um, you know is so able to articulate a very particular narrative with specificity while um really staying focused that uh, of the violence of police state, the violence of institution on uh, black persons. Like she's just been able to maintain that even as she's moved through different institutions and roles. So it's a delight to hear her father was so engaged in culture. And I've always known, I've known that from working with her that she has a very, very strong interest in cultural expression yeah. as well. Yeah, right. You worked in uh, social work. You have written about social work. There is, um, as you describe, a sort of default relationship to social work that has to do with the scientific method, cause and effect. 
and you introduced an alternative in one of your texts talking about a poesis in social work. This to me also seems to have a direct connection to art and activism broadly. Yes. You also talk about how philosophy can be a way of doing social work. Yes. So can you talk about how these academic concerns that have material consequences relate to this um, dyad of art and activism? If, if I can start with social work, I mean, uh, and maybe start with some um, historical experience. Um, it's been a long time since I've been a social worker, uh, quite a long time. But um, even two decades ago, I could see how the measurement of worth of people and the assessment of ability of people was being uh, formed up in pre-existing formats. Um, and I'm going to risk saying this abstract concept and we'll work it through. But I mean, and, and out of that, I sort of, and maybe somewhat related is to finance my time in a social work degree. I was working in a car plant in Windsor over the summer and uh, robotics was coming in big time. It was the first introduction, introduction of robotics on the line. And I remember as a young man thinking, well, there it is, like, there it is, we'll just replace humans. Like, and, and, and sadly, I feel like these early observations as a young man have only been heightened over time. Um, and what used to be social science is now, I, I sometimes marvel at the success of social science because I feel like all these uh, five-point surveys you get about how was your interaction or what's the product look like online or the data collection, it's all just a form of social science. And that's a kind of particular politics of reduction and taking out social context and making about consumers. Um, and... Um, I gave, I can give an example of social science where I was, I went to a local post office where I know the woman really well, and we were doing an exchange. And uh, for the first time when I went to check out, the screen was between her and I, and there was a five point Lichter scale, and it was like quality of interaction. And I said to her, I don't understand what this is. Is this something I need to pay you? And she ignored it. She didn't talk about it, which I thought was a form of resistance. Um, and then I and then I looked at it again. I said, oh, my God, they're asking me to evaluate you right now here in front of your face. Yeah. And she said, yeah, that's what's going on. And I said, well, you know, I'll give you all very high scores to get through this and we'll and, and uh, she was just so thankful that I could see the politic of what was happening. So there's this a combination of technology intervening all the time in a troubling way, disciplining way to the labor force. But there's also, but it's also tied to a kind of reductionism, and that's beyond the the field of social work, also in education. So that becomes one of the paradigms that's a kind of empty sameness. It's unquestioned, the politics of it, 
uh, kind of tie into capitalism in a way where we don't talk about the politics of it, the effect on labor, the effect on bodies. All that to say, that's just one of them. So let's talk, if we use technique, efficiency, social science as a taken for granted, um, and it doesn't refer back to social experience and social relations. If I can just take a moment with technology, a, a very, very influential thinker for me was Ursula Franklin at the University of Toronto, who's a Quaker. I believe her background was engineering, and she became as much interested in the social construction of disciplines as she was with the actual practice. Another person who I love this combination of practicality and practice and ability, if I can call it that, and competence in a very technical way, but also a social awareness. These two things combined in a kind of dialectic between the two. And I'm drawn to these type of people in terms of my interest of hearing their voice. So the thing, so one of the, things that Ursula Franklin helped me think about is how technology is always a mediation. Um, I've come a long way in being a te- from being an outright technophobe to really kind of enjoying technology and enjoying the possibilities of it, but also feeling that we have to keep a politic alive, that it's a mediation. And very often it's a mediation uh, driven through corporation and profit making. And and the slippage is so easy. I find myself arguing, well, I've been doing a good job at work because I use Twitch and I use Zoom and I use um, Instagram. So like I'm doing social innovation because I'm using all these platforms. And yet it's just another slippage into... Uh, defining your self-worth by the mediating platform, right? And that mediating platform currently is very much driven by corporate enterprise and um, isolation where you don't have to uh, force social responsibility on them. Even as I say this, I can hear other people talking, yeah, but can you can make micro-communities and technology. Like I hear younger students I work with, I really understand how they found voice. It feels utopian, though. Pardon me? It feels utopian. Like it is nonetheless a a sort of techno-feudalism because these platforms have, as as much as you or I might be critical of a state formation, there is a kind of like, very broadly, very scare quotes, uh, democratic mandate. Right. And it is less clear what these platforms are responsible to. Exactly. And especially as they become profitable, the, as they become popular and as they become profitable, they yeah. can be hijacked politically and they are already neoliberal instruments. Exactly. And I think exactly if I, I like this notion of a kind of feudalism, like they are a feudal space. I mean, they're owned elsewhere. They're owned separate. They're owned away. Um, we, we don't, we can't talk to them. <laughs> we can't talk back to them uh, or the people who run them. Um, and I do feel like if you, 
if you talk about neoliberalism as a kind of individualism and autonomy that everyone wants to have and somehow we're being democratic, it's falling right into the needs of global capitalists, uh, you know, like... Um, yeah, we'll create a little micro-community on Instagram and, uh, we'll all talk to each other, but you're still in a context of a micro-community and you're not sharing outside that community and you're taking the weight of social relations on your back. That's what really concerns me is people inadvertently and without full understanding of consciousness of what technology is doing are really taking the weight of it. So if I might, like some young activists, I believe, um, it's not, I shouldn't just make it generational, but um, I think um, they work so hard to be stuck in an autonomous space that's being defined by commercial enterprise, if I can put it that way. And yet that space will never redefine itself in a way to make possible the social public good they want. Neoliberalism is a cult of individualism, but the algorithm and uh, that it is generated by this mass data collection yes. produces like a strange relationship to individualism. Like... Everybody is captured by the algorithm to the extent that we submit ourselves to it. Right. We submit ourselves to these kind of like reductivist, necessarily reductivist uh, metrics. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting. Voluntarily. So if I might, like, yeah, I mean, talk about... um a need for new consciousness. Like, I mean, I voluntarily submit myself to it over and over again, and I'm fascinated by it. And I'm fascinated by who responds to what image I put up. Um, but I'm also kind of fascinated what the al- how the algorithm reads me. Yeah. And then what I get fed back, uh, often incorrect, um, yeah. more commercial, more like I get a lot of celebrity stuff for some reason, yeah. but that may be just the algorithm. But someone, I was just talking yesterday to someone about algorithms who works in tech, and he was saying, well, there's a lot of averaging. You, you need mm-hmm. It's averaging. And I'm like, well, that's how it becomes normalizing. And then mm-hmm. we always end up in the center again. Mm-hmm. We always end up in a kind of purity of image, um, which is another thing I critique in my work that's not evident um, necessarily. But this pure and whole self, I forget who, uh, I think it's Kristeva who talks about the pure and whole self. Mm-hmm. And that's been a reserve of the male. Like we have pure body, uh, the white male, and I'll speak for myself. So, I, you know, I just trained into I have this pure body. It's, it's um, contained. It can't be um, infected or inserted into right so that's a politic that's a politic like in any way we push needle at patriarchy anytime we push at a man um we're possibly um so threatening even if we look different or talk different or have a different utterance um that's a threat to the pure body so you have that going on 
while you have technology um, making us all rush to the middle. Mm -hmm. And then we present as pure bodies, right? And then we're caught in this loop of um, nothing's queer, nothing disrupts, nothing, there's no outside to it. You yeah. know, it's an intractable homogenizing yes, force. Absolutely. And yet it's done in the name of algorithm or the name of, again, reduction of measures of the middle. Well, and this is so interesting because if in your writing on social work, there's resistance to kind of the scientific method and like the its basis in causality, poesis at its core is to accept, to underscore that our experience is not capturable. Our experience is not utterable. And so that resistance within the social work practice can equally be applied to reductionism within the institution and reduction, like the averaging that you're talking about within the algorithm. And it can happen in a social media context, but as you're talking about, this is a way of policing people's work. This is a way of policing who is resourced and how. Yes. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I think one of the best forms of resistance, well, it's it's in terms of my own interest. I mean, I believe uh, personally that I've been able to do a form of poesis through life um, where I remain present in a particular way, but it always doesn't quite fit the institutional requirements um, because that is my politic to say, you know what, I'm uncapturable. And my best, most quality educational moments with students will never be captured again. There are moments of um, engagement. There are moments of surprise by me. There are moments when um, they turn around my thinking as much as they're turning the students' thinking. Mm -hmm. And they're elusive. It's it's interesting to me the question of imagination. I think I, I, this came up um, in one of our interviews. Um, imagination is really interesting to me because there is this a couple of things. I've always I always <laughs> as long as I've taught, I'll start the term thinking this may be it for capitalism. This is the crisis. You know it was. The oil crisis, then, I mean, and when I was a young man, it was a Vietnam War. Like, I just always thought, this is the crisis that'll break the back. And, and I hopefully thought perhaps, I, I mean, to be careful about how I talk about a pandemic, but I thought it might create a new consciousness of shared public health. Um, so I keep, so on one hand, I keep thinking, this is it, capitalism's going to change, even if it doesn't disappear. It's so vested, it'll change in this moment. We'll get back to a more social democratic model. But every time it it just finds new and new spaces to, to invest in or, or like that's, I think the creep of capitalism is one of our biggest threats right now because it has to um, colonize space. And so it has it has to always grow and profit motive always has to grow. So it has to take every public space. I'm making that point because one can despair. Yeah. One can just go, it's bleak. 
And particularly right now, there's so much going on that one can despair over a rise in the right, a kind of fascistic possibility right now, um, a kind of growth in the centralization of wealth that seems somehow acceptable, a discourse of business that to me is lately starting to feel like an empty signifier but we're just struggling to keep forward keep moving keep moving yeah. like we don't know we don't know we're just keeping moving forward there is still a possibility even in the bleakest moments <laughs> to have imagination and imag- and this ties back to arts and poesies and the poetic we can always have imagination. Imagination can't be taken away other than to start destroying our physicalities, our physical bodies, right? Which happens for people. Um, um, and in those social imaginator, imagining possibilities, there might be hope. There might be a possibility of something, but we're so constrained by networks of discipline. I mean, all named in the ideology of freedom, like the disciplinary mechanisms are so powerful right now that it seems to me art and imagination is still is vital because it's a way out like how do you get out of the paradigm so there's a particular type of activism that has a through story that's really concrete that is based in personal experience and i might add that both our interviews so powerful because it's based in their personal trauma their personal experience their personal uh, awareness of social violence um There's also a kind of activism that is uh, trying to get outside, just trying to find a a voice separate from paradigms that constrain. Um, And that's where art and the poetic comes from for me. And it necessarily can't always have an answer because it's a possibility Mm -hmm. rather than... And so it's a different type of activism where you're always imagining a possibility rather than the end point of what policy needs to be changed yeah. for example we live in a weird relationship to fantasy uh consumer fantasy is so driven by um, ideas of glamour and distortions of human relations uh distortions of one's relationship to oneself but it seems like what you're saying is that difference change from whatever dominant ideologies paradigmatic social relations we also still need to hold on to fantasy but a sort of productive fantasy that exists in relationship to what a political reality uh i think um I mean, I'll speak to my own interest in a way, but I think it's productive fantasy that's still tied to social relations and mm-hmm. still tied to the local and not, um, hmm, I need to be careful because I do think there's moments when I do think it's really to watch something beautiful online right. that's completely separate is a really freshness 
to that brings back fresh insight. Yeah. But I think if we want to talk about social justice and social change, let's put it that way, I do think it's fantasy that's still tied to some concrete social relation, some lived experience, yeah. and then work from there. Or a more dialectic. You work in yeah. the imagination, the social imaginary, and then you come back to how does that feel locally? What am I observing? Yeah. Is there any possibility in this? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it seems like the alienation that you're pointing to within built into some of these closed technological systems is precisely uh a death to a mass politics i think yes that, that cuts two ways like there is this concern about about the rise of fascism today it doesn't have the historical hallmarks of fascism as we saw it at the turn of the 20th century because we don't exist in a mass political moment the right. technology conspires against that but at the same time that is what presents prevents rather the possibility of the raising of class consciousness that that prevents a kind of engagement between fellows yeah over what do we need what do we need to change not a professional managerial class sorts of change where it's like well right. i want my treats delivered on time right you know what i mean i want to rearrange yeah. the deck chairs in hell right but like what can we how can we bring about this progressive social change so thinking about what you've said in terms of social relations the local what happens immediate that seems practical do you think that a mass politic has a role in this well i mean first of all i think your analysis is spot on like um and this is why to go back for a moment why we should trouble technology and our are slippage into the acceptance of this form of mediation because it works against the mass. I, I agree. I mean, even when mass demonstrations happen, they often then become spectacle and they're captured as image. And it feels good. I mean, I've been in a lot of them, you know, climate marches, uh, um, all sorts of marches, but, and it feels good in the moment. I mean, I was talking to someone like, how do we capture things that are elusive? Like, how do we capture the feeling of that march when you're in it yeah. and you're just thrilled that yeah. so many people showed up? Yeah. What's the capture there? And I was giving another example. What's the capture of being on a shore of a lake and there's it's not developed and you see darkness in the trees? That's a quality that yeah. people should be able to share, yeah. but through development will be lost. Like, how do we capture? What's the capture? And unfortunately, I feel like the kind of large corporate enterprise has captured this as spectacle. And then it becomes spectacle, and then it becomes nothing other than... So to come back to how do we make ourselves present? How do we think about the moment? How do we capture the elusive? These are real, to me, these are like essential questions. Like these are essential political questions. Because I do feel, to go back to the idea of mass movements, that it's really the fellow feeling. It's really the, oh, someone thinks like me. I don't need to despair. Yeah. Uh, and very often that has to be, uh, for me anyway, that's my experience, has to be experienced in person. Yeah. You have to have agreement. Um, 
and then build that. But unfortunately, these things get captured, and then we go back to creating little discourses and putting things up on Twitter. And you know, um, not to disparage that, I, I think some people are very effective in doing that. But just as we, uh, this is another thing that interests me: the whole idea of desire that we we. There's so many of us that have a kind of decency of desire to be engaged socially, to protect each other. There really is. And yet, and I see it in my students and I see it amongst my colleagues. And yet, and yet, it's not in our political discourse right now. Maybe. Something that what you're saying here points to is there is a connection between poesis and the possibility of change and difference that art holds out. But what needs to be kept alive in poesis is that dependence upon presence, which is to say the experience uh -huh. cannot actually ever be captured. It can only be rendered. Right, exactly. Art is a technology that attempts to render these particular moments the problem yeah. is is that in a commercial context i mean the yeah. reason that we are are in a, a cultural war in a culture war as it were uh -huh. is because these cultural products uh -huh. which has to do with film and literature and has yeah. to do with these forms yeah uh we're confusing that with something material or confusing it with right. ourselves so these are like fantasies it's, that are alluring and make us feel things but maybe aren't as connected to the sorts of political change and difference that you're interested in that is a great summary if i could just say yeah. like and, and it is embodied it's ultimately embodied and so it's, and we just really we're even losing embodiment so we so react true. to uh these renderings of reality, like yeah. their reality. And and it's, I, I mean, I don't want to speak from a lofty place about this no. and that, because I slip into it all the time. Like, this is real because it's an image that I saw that I enjoyed that made me feel like I'm simpatico with somebody, yeah. you know, because they did a post. Yeah. Um, but it's a rendering of reality and it's not being present. So yeah. the presence, yeah, I think... The, the presence, the material presence, the lived presence, the experienced presence. Um, I think Kiki talked about public space mm -hmm. um, and growing up in a kind of radical diversity where you had to engage. Yeah. You had to be present together. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all conflict or it wasn't all renderings of each other we're imagining. Yeah. Um, I do think there's important polish of what we call a thesis, and what I mean by that is making oneself present. That we reflect on how are we making one ourselves present, yeah. because there's a social responsibility that's actually tied to how we make ourselves present, mm -hmm. um, and we can easily go to the banal. It's so simple, and I'm not judging people. I'm just saying it's the social context that the banal is rewarded. Um, but I was reading something by Foucault that really hit me where he says, to only be preoccupied with your own consciousness is the most conservative practice. And I love that. And that stuck with me because I've been such 
a promoter of the poetic and making yourself present, especially for persons who experience marginalization, like just keep your voice out there, just be present, like keep, but I would now, uh, qualify that by saying that's important that's a politic but don't make it about your own consciousness because you're falling back into a kind of individualism and autonomy that yeah. it always needs to be fractured it always needs to be able to fall apart or relational and relational like exactly you're not advocating for uh you're not advocating for monastic presence you're exactly you're advocating for a presence that is about social relation exactly and and that presence may be able um to change it has to change uh by virtue of the social relations especially if you're trying to um engage in politics that are not your own like i'll use um anti-racism for example for me as a white man i need to be engaged socially i need to understand how i change and to to even i'm going to push this point a little bit because it's a fascination i have that i'm not sure i'm clear about anymore (laughs) but um I've been really playing with the idea of how do you disappear um, because in some ways um, when I think the current economy where we're constantly struggling, not so much myself, but people around me are struggling, you know, with gig work and trying to patch things together. um, There's a way you have to keep it together. You have mm-hmm. to uh, just protect your own. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel somehow this kind of constant struggle of labor just to survive mm-hmm. also makes us um, have to hold on to who we are. Yeah. Um, but if social relations are so troubling, um, if prejudice is so much a possibility, it what are we protecting i mean we just have to ask ourselves like how can we let ourselves fall apart a little bit <laughs> it's a little bit of a privilege question i i feel or Certainly. privileged answer that i can say that cuz yeah. i'm fully employed and i'm protected econ- in you yeah. know in this economy right now um but i can imagine what would it look like if i fell apart a little bit it's a, and in a way, that's a radical discourse right now. If you're not about progress, you're not about having it together, you're not about moving forward yeah. in a particular way. What if you fall apart yeah. and then reconstitute yeah. in a way that's more helpful or more open to the other? Well, part of the reductionism that you point to in this like social scientific model and its broader application within the technological milieu, part of what it is obscuring is how essential to all forms of uh, social relation, human relation, uh, improvisation is. Like, that's why you need to remain dynamic. That's why you need to remain kind of nimble because things emerge between people. Right, exactly. And on another hand, um, things emerge between people but also the capture, um, 
that's done without improvisation uh, becomes stale fast. Um, and so there's a kind of dynamism of social relations that really demands a kind of dance yeah. that we dance with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and even literally, <laughs> like yeah. the way Kiki talked about her father owning a bar, yeah. you know, like um, we really need those experiences, but we need to, I into it, we need to experience each other. Yeah. We need to work it through together. Yeah. Absolutely. I had a difficult relationship to my father. Um, and late in life, he wrote me a little handwritten letter and sent it to me. And he signed it, Love Dad. Mm. And that was probably the only time he ever right. used that word. Right. So I actually framed it, <laughs> that letter. And when I was working in the car plant, I go to... We go together in his car because he'd be on shift too, and we'd fight like often. Uh, to be honest, I was like a young man, like you know, uh, I can't take this anymore. And he's like, "Well, you are going to take it," that sort of thing. Anyway, disciplining not, the working class body. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I actually think my dad had dual consciousness that he wasn't as working class as his buds were. That's a whole other thing. Uh, because he read more. But he would listen to jazz, which mm. always disrupted my perception of him. Well, and so, to the reading, this is very interesting. I like this. It, because disciplining the working class body has yeah. to do with masculinity. Yes, absolutely. The body comes with the labor, the body is right. the labor. And it's yeah. funny, this like, on the nose, brave new world, kind of like, well, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit of fetch to like jazz music and novels. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and that was him. I yeah. mean, so he was that man. He was that working class man yeah. while alienated from being that man. I don't know that he had the language to think it through. I mean, I think he had the anger mm -hmm. um, that could have been used in a different way because he, <laughs> He was that guy. He just read and read and read. Um, but I don't think he really had much of an outlet for it, that reading. And he took photos. Hmm. Um, uh, so it took me long after he was dead to realize, oh, he thought of himself as an artist. Yeah, right. Like, I never thought of him as an artist. Yeah, right. And uh, and he'd listen to jazz. Hmm. And he'd particularly, I, I mean, so we're at Detroit. So he'd listen to fusion. He'd listen to black jazz. He'd listen to, um, and those same moments being trapped in a car, talk about a mechanical reality. We're trapped in a car going to a car plant. And sometimes it'd be arguing yeah. other times because I, I like your interpretation because he's disciplining my working class body to yeah. say, well, you might not like it, but this is it, yeah. and this is what you're dealing with, yeah. and you know, get to work, sort yeah. of thing, um, and um, or be a man, mm -hmm. yeah, just be a man. Um, 
Um, so he's self-disciplined. He's disciplining me. Uh, we're being disciplined at work with the rote labor, right? Yeah. And and it's all in the context of precariousness yeah. because, you know, factories would go through shutdown and suddenly be home with no work. Yeah. Um, um, but there'd be other nights that car ride, especially I seem to think of the midnight car ride or the 11 o'clock after the evening shift, mm-hmm. driving through Windsor, it would be driving through Windsor, it'd be sublime. Yeah, yeah. Well, you connect on that. Like, you can see the inheritance that you've had. And also, part of what would be sublime was the jazz on the radio out of Detroit. Right. And the two of us could listen to that. Yeah, and connect And be at peace with each other. Right. Yeah. And it's in the context of hot, humid... Windsor oppressive, like stinking heat, off your shift, stinking, <laughs> yeah, coming off the shift where yeah. you've been sweating, yeah, um, where the guys in the foundry would be, their faces would be blackened, you yeah. know, um, from soot yeah. um, as they're coming off shift. So, um, so it was both. Yeah. It was all that at once, and I guess so. To go back to the notion of art, I mean, a lot of art, and there's other examples where I put text and my lived experience or images from my life that are quite personal or reimagining. And and this is a question of it's not all one thing, mm-hmm. you know, like white working class Windsor, racist. Mm-hmm. But also yeah. there's these moments of fracture where yeah. you're like, whoa, there's a possibility. Downstream from what is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari. Score is by Ben McCarthy. Funded by the Dean, Faculty of Community Services, the Dean, Faculty of Arts, and the Office of the President at Toronto Metropolitan University. 